0: Are we really taking the time to listen to one another? Are we willing to disengage in order to re-engage? Are we really able to to really step back and really listen to one another? Or are we so pressed, we've got to make a decision, we haven't got time. Perhaps the pressures on all of us is preventing us from, um, from just stopping and pondering and thinking. It's very difficult to have the
1: conversation that you're describing, isn't it? Being in that place where the claims of the past and the claims of the future yep. are, you're in full contact with both at once. Yep. And how important it becomes in that moment yep. to work out how do you create that, again, that liminal space, yep. that bit of filler between this and that, that just alleviates that pressure for enough time for us to collect ourselves encounter um, each other, connect.
2: You're listening to Common Era, a podcast about spirituality in an age of change. For our first season, we're hosting a conversation between author and musician David Benjamin Blower and Nicholas Postlethwaite, a Catholic priest from the Passionists. In this episode, David and Nicholas talk about the threshold of change, significant moments in time, and the feeling of being caught between the pressures of the past and the demands of the future. They discuss the challenges of creating space and authentic conversation in those moments. And they share their own experiences of that place where change is occurring and relationships are put under pressure.
1: So when I got involved in the No More Page 3 campaign, as I said, I've been involved in activism of one kind or another before then and have been since. I guess the sort of expansion of my world and my vision and my connections perhaps began a knock-on effect where dissonances I felt with my religious group, my sort of evangelical world, perhaps they became bigger or perhaps my activities seemed more threatening to some within my group. And I found myself in a slightly new situation. I'd always had a posture of resistance towards bad power out in the world. I hadn't really exercised that posture in the other direction, to the tribe that was behind me, that I belonged to. And I found myself, well, not really wanting to, but more and more my position on certain things becoming uncomfortable to powerful voices within my own group. And my posture of resistance or protest, or what have you, then was going in two directions. I was participating with people outside my tribe in confronting power, speaking truth to power, this way. But then I also found myself, at least, think, believing that I was speaking truth to power with regard to my own environment. That became hard to live well with adopting that posture in both directions. And I think I had to recalibrate how I used my energies I never really wanted to sort of be involved in controversies within the tribe, as it were. They were sort of um, upon me, and I, I guess I found myself having to address those things. But the more I found myself having to address them, the bigger they grew and so on. The other passionist I know is Martin Newell, who's always getting arrested for something or other. And I don't know if that's just common to the passionist posture in the world, whether it's characteristically politicized or whether that's you know certain people in it go in that kind of direction so I'm interested in that as a as an energy within the passionists and how integral that is to the passionist identity I'm also interested in the notion of resistance and speaking truth to power in the other direction do you find yourself needing to address questions within the you know the way power is used in your in your own group in the broader catholic picture or any level within that
0: yes <laughs> yes. yes is the simple answer I, I mean i think it would be i think it's natural that if you are belonging to a group and if you are if you are committed to speaking to challenging bad power as you put it or supporting good power then then inevitably that there will be differences in terms of how that's perceived Part of my own journey has been that I, I was asked in the late 90s to take on the leadership role that Martin is presently doing now, so I was I was elected as provincial. My motivation in accepting that role was obviously, hopefully, to serve the the, the group, the tribe, as you put it, the community, the larger community, but also very much to encourage that larger community to begin to perhaps work towards thinking through some of the implications of what the journey had been for me and Austin up to that point, what we called our inner city mission. Because the, the way it had developed would be that, well, first of all, it was just two of us, and then, and then there were another two, four of us then, two in London, we were in Liverpool. There were others expressing interest. So we felt that the, the experiences we were having would benefit the larger group, if the larger group could be persuaded to embrace it more than it, it, it was doing. So you had like the traditional sort of background and background work and commitments that we had as an order for the last 150 years or so. And you had these new experiments and the, the balance between those two. When we started we were seen very much as an experimental group. Well, okay, nothing lost. If Austin and Nicholas go off and do that, you know, they may or may not sort of do anything dramatic, but it won't really affect the overall balance. But then when I became provincial, we we worked Hopefully, in in a, in a consensual way with the rest of the, com- the wider community, to say, well, what are our priorities? Do we need to rethink what what are the directions we want it to go? Given given the lessons that we're beginning to learn, so there, there was a gradual shift, which has continued on. To an extent, our particular province doesn't fit. All that well within the larger international gathering of the Passionists. Don't get me wrong; they're very supportive of us in terms of, like, saying we're glad of what you're doing in England. But there's not all that many in the other provinces who are doing it in the way that we've been doing it. So you've got a larger, a larger tension between the particular way that we've followed in this, this in our province, and the the more traditional ways in in other parts of the world. That would be okay so long as there's enough strength and security within the, the province to sustain that and so long as, you know, by and large it's working. But when that is beginning to shrink and when that province is, is almost becoming unviable because of numbers, then that leaves a dilemma because if we haven't been successful in encouraging a wider participation in the in the international grouping, do we risk sort of like closing down or becoming merged with this larger sort of entity in such a way that the, the struggles of the last 40, 50 years might risk being lost within our, our setup. So that, that creates tensions, lots of tensions, because different people perceive it in different ways. You've rightly sort of mentioned that we're in the happy position at the moment of having somebody like Martin Who's extraordinary in, in the sense that I mean his, his radical commitment has taken him along paths that I would never even contemplate it doing. I, I sort of admire his, his total commitment and his willingness to put his life where where what he believes in. I feel though that there's still a, a problem. And the problem is that if we lose the autonomy and that sort of little, little amount of freedom within the Catholic setup that a religious order and our constitution gives us, and if we simply become merged with a larger grouping, then, then that spark could sort of dissipate. We've had to adapt over the last 40 or 50 years in a way that has been wonderful. Have we come to the end of that adaptation or might there be a structural reconfiguration in terms of how we we continue the story we're back to undertaker and midwife how how could we allow the model that is presently sustaining us and has sustained us how could we open that up so that others could become part of it and share in the process and take it in new ways forward that's the dilemma
1: yeah i suppose all such transitions have their own character, don't they, and their yeah. own questions. And there's always the question for everybody in whatever realm they're in, facing whatever kind of changes they're facing. How much of this can I be part of carrying forward into yeah. a new form? How much of this has to yeah. has to die and end? And then where's, where's my place in it? At what point do I um, say... I can't do the task I need to do in this. I can't be the undertaker, or the you mm. know, uh, I can't be the undertaker because it won't die, or I, mm. <laughs> or I can't be the midwife because mm. the, the, you know the, the birth is not being allowed; it's being mm. kind of prevented from happening. I have a friend who's a Catholic, and I very much admired her um, posture of disagreeing angrily with almost everything about the institution. Mm. And I remember saying, "Well, why you know, why are you still a Catholic?" Mm. And she just it was just who I am, you know. It didn't seem like hardly any of it she could roll with, but it's who she was, and I'm fascinated by that ability to yeah. stay with something in in a place of total revolt, yeah. yes. <laughs> without yes. being shaken off it. I, I guess I'm a little bit envious of it, maybe. But I don't know what the right, you know, answers to those questions are, and I'd have thought they're probably different depending on. Where we stand in this time of extraordinary changes, we're all in the midst of questions to which there are no stock answers,
0: aren't we? And that's... Yeah, but I mean, what I would say that whichever particular situation we're in, whether it's the passionist one or, or others that, that you're, you're thinking about, it goes back to something else we've touched on in this conversation, um, which is conversation. In other words, who's talking to who? How, how open are the conversations about it? are we really listening to one another? Because it's very easy, particularly in the tribe, to use that lovely word that you've been using, which I I can quite sort of identify with. We we are tribes, even when we claim we're a religious order. It's the group. Are we really taking the time to listen to one another? Austin used to say, are we willing to disengage in order to re-engage? Are we really able to, to, to really step back and really create the space where, like, let's really listen to one another. Or are we so pressed, we've got to make a decision, got to have this done, or, you know, the, we, we haven't got time. And I think that that's one of the bit, the saddest things at the moment, that perhaps the pressures on all of us is that it's preventing us from just stopping and pondering and thinking. And again, going back to the Gospels, that's, that's a thing that comes through now and again, this, I mean the gospel for this coming sunday just as a matter of fact i was thinking about it this morning before i um, set off to drive down here and it's the gospel of jesus asks the rhetorical question question what do we think the kingdom of god is like simple question (laughs) answer starts talking about seeds he starts talking about mustard seeds and then the mustard tree seeds grows into a big tree and then full stop and then at the last bit of that, of Mark's Gospel, it sort of says, and then uh, he took the his disciples, the, the friends, the disciples apart, and explained it to them. In other words, I find it very reassuring. The first hearing that they had of it, probably hadn't got a clue what he was on about. What the hell's this got to do with mustard seeds? Hadn't seen the radicality of what he was really proposing. But then the Gospel see, it says, well, they... They began to think about it. So, mm. so the, the important thing for me is not whether we grasp the story or the mustard seed. In, uh, for me at the moment, it's, it's are we hearing a radical question and a group, a, a confused group of followers who are following this Jesus fellow because he's, he's, he's got something special about him? And are we prepared to really sit down and talk to one another about it? Mm. This is making me think of a Franz Kafka story
1: that Hannah Arendt quotes in an essay about time and history and such. And this, in, in this Kafka story, the, the, the protagonist is there. And the past is in front of him, pushing him back. And the future is behind him, pushing him forward. So the protagonist is, is stood there with both these claims mm-hmm. and, and just in you know, constant pressure and struggle. And then the story ends with some statement along the lines of, but ultimately the question lies with the protagonist because mm-hmm. the protagonist has a mind of their own. And my rhetorical question on the end of it is, if the protagonist can steady themselves to ponder that reality. Yeah. So it's being in that place where the claims of the past and the claims of the future yeah. are, you're in full contact with both at once. Yeah. Aaron's idea is this isn't all the time, this is these moments yeah. of truth in history that have this extraordinary weight, and how important it becomes in that moment you yeah. know to work out how do you create that again that liminal space yeah. that bit of filler between this and that that just alleviates that pressure for enough time for us to collect ourselves it's very difficult to have the conversation that you're describing isn't it when oneself or the other person feel totally arrested with that you yeah. uh, with those claims with that pressure yeah so the question of how do we create those liminal spaces? Or we are in a liminal space, but how do we how do we enlarge that a little bit so that we can centre, encounter each other,
0: connect? Your, your story of um, the future and the past present it reminds me of the story that Martin Buber. You probably know the Martin Buber story, where the holy man lives in the city, and gets frustrated by the noise and the bustle and everything, and, and decides that he's, he, he needs to find God in the desert. So he sets off from the city and goes, walks and walks and walks into the desert. And in the Martin Buber story, do you know the one where he says he arrives at the gate of the mystery, a big wall, and there's a gate there, and he tries the handle on the, on the gate, and it's locked. And the voice from within says, who is it? And he says, it's, it's I, it's, and what do you want? Speaking to the mystery of God, I've come to seek you in the solitude of the desert, far from the noise and bustle of the, the city, etc. Um, open for me. And in the story, God says, no, no, go back to the city. And there, in your groping towards your fellow human beings, your fellow men, even when you miss one another, it's there you will find me. And, and that story sort of sustained me, that it's, it's in that it's in the human interchange, isn't it, all the time, whether it's in your tribe or whether it's outside and whether it's about... And the noise and the bustle is sort of like the struggle with power and where are we in, in terms of that... But it forces you back all the time onto that direct communication with one another within a, within a group that's either authentic or not. You're never going to get it completely, right? But uh, anyway. Common Era is
2: produced by Passionists in England and Wales. To find out more about us, look us up at passionists.org.uk. Join us for the final episode where Nicholas and David will be discussing the things that they feel are coming to an end in this era and how we might create healthy funeral rites for those things.